What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about the Constitution. Our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Ellie Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He's the nation's justice correspondent. He's a fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC and CNN. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's also great on Twitter. Ellie Mistal, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk today about the Fifth Amendment. As everybody knows, the Fifth Amendment says the government can't make you incriminate yourself. But there's a second part of the Fifth Amendment that's not so well known. It says the government can't take away your property unless, unless what? Unless they give you just compensation, right? And that, that is, that is the, that is the, that's the top of the pyramid question. Like that's where the fight is. The government has a clear, unquestionable right to take your property. It's called the right of eminent domain. Every sovereign nation has it. It probably goes back to, you know, I made, I think I make the joke in the book. It probably goes back to like, you know, the village caveman chief, like <laughs> taking the cave from this other guy because they needed the cave to store the food. Like you can go back probably to the beginning of human civilization to understand some version of the of the government's theory for eminent domain. So so my question is, what does this have to do with black people? <laughs> well, it does because well, we'll put it like this, John, that the government can take property is unquestionable. Who are the government going to take the property from? That's where we have some fun. Right. And it turns out that more often than not, the government is going to take property from people who are poor, from people who are politically unconnected, from people who are powerless. That's the property they're going to go get because in part of this just compensation rule, you can pay less 
for property from people who are poor, unconnected, not powerful, don't have a lot to begin with. You can get that property on the cheap for, in a lot of situations. Also because those people cannot organize to fight and defend themselves and defend their kind of property rights against you, against you, the government in court as effectively as rich folks, right? And so what we've seen throughout history is the government, the American government, constantly kind of going after the property of poor folks, minorities, and in fact, not justly compensating them um, for, for their land, but cheaply compensating them, shall we say, for their land. Well, the fights over eminent domain recently have been fought by libertarian forces on the right. For them, of course, government is the problem and private property is the solution. And liberals usually support the government in these fights because the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the public. But who is this public? Yeah, so this is where I end up agreeing with Republicans a little bit, which oh, is no. super uncomfortable for me because you said it exactly right. Yes, the general liberal position is that eminent domain is a good power for the government to have because when the government takes the property, it's going to do useful public things with the property, right? It's going to take the property so it can build a hospital or a library or a public space. It's going to take the economic uh, vitality of the property and preserve it as a historical site, for instance. Maybe it's going to take some, maybe you've got a lot of property, it's going to take a little bit of your land to put up windmills or solar panels. All of these useful things is what the government is what we think of as liberals of the government doing when it takes your property. In practice, in practice, what happens more often than not is that the government takes your property and then gives it to private investors on the cheap under some nebulous argument of economic development or redevelopment. So this power of eminent domain that should be used to build hospitals and wind farms is in fact used to build like baseball stadiums and basketball arenas, right? It's the government taking the property in, you know, let's say uh, in, a, in, a, in an urban environment, giving it to a rich white sports owner on the cheap so they can build a billion dollar palace for their toy sports team and not share the money, by the way, back with, back with the government, back with the state, back with the people whose property got took. And that, that's just one example. There, there are lots of, you know, the stadium example is the most obvious one, but there are lots of like allegedly public purpose things that the government will take property for that actually end up in the pockets of private investors. This all kind of crescendoed with the major Supreme Court case called Kilo versus City of New London. That's where uh, the, city, the state of Connecticut basically took an entire development zone and gave it to some economic developers for, for re revitalization or whatever. It was just a cash grab for these private investors and, and the people whose property was, ta was taken, they went to court, including one Suzette Kilo who just had a house that she didn't want to give up in New London, Connecticut. And they lost five to four with Stephen Breyer writing the majority opinion, defending the government's use of eminent domain and all that kind of stuff. And Clarence Thomas writing the dissent, and this is like the one, you could go through the annals of American history and not find many places where I agree with Clarence Thomas over Stephen Breyer, but this is, this is the one. This is, <laughs> okay. like, I think Clarence Thomas had the better of that argument because what Thomas said was that public use cannot be whatever the government says it is that day. 
it's got to mean something more tangible than whatever the government thinks it is, because too often the government will say it's public use when what they really mean is they're going to get some money from private investors. And I agree with Thomas kind of, ew, <laughs> and, uh, it's hard. I can see the pain on your face. <laughs> So your piece for the nation opens with a fascinating example. It's it's not from the 1950s, it's from the 1850s. And the public purpose was a great one. The creation of the greatest of all American urban parks, Central Park in New York City. We are so happy that we have a Central Park in New York City. What does this have to do with black people? There was an entire village, an entire community of free land-owning, voting Black people who lived in what is now Central Park. It was called Seneca Village. Hundreds of Black families lived there because back in the, this, you know, back in the long ago, in the before times, in the long, long ago, the white people who initially, who, who owned, I say that very loosely because we know that all of this land was taken from somebody else, but the white people who owned kind of at that point, what was upper Manhattan, because remember most of Manhattan in the 1850s was located basically below 14th Street, um, really below Canal Street. So they owned this Manhattan estate that was basically the country, which was, it was literally farmland. And the, this white family decided that they would sell the farmland to undesirables, which included black people and quite a few Irish people. And so an entire community sprung up basically on what is now the west side of Central Park, kind of above, uh, you know, above the 70s, um, um, where like if Broadway went straight through the park, kind of west of where Broadway would be above the 70s, there was this whole village of Black people who owned property. Remember, in the 1850s, there was no, there was no 15th Amendment. So there was no guarantee of suffrage for Black people. But New York State had a rule that if you were black and you owned at least, I think it was $200 worth of property, you could vote. Seneca Village was one of the only places in New York where you, where you could be a black person and own property because that was the only, one of the only places that white people would sell you property. So Seneca Village had a large percentage of the entire black voting power in New York City at the time. And they took it from them. They just, they just took the land from them to make Central Park. So this is an example from the 1850s, but you say all of the tricks that would be deployed against black communities in the 20th century were used against the people of Seneca Village in the 1850s. Tell us about these tricks. Yeah, so what the first thing they do is they say that they, they basically say that the property is condemned, that it's that it's swampland or, 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 or whatever, that it's, um, that it's not economically productive property and it's dangerous property. They use this to kind of drive down the price that the government will eventually have to pay under the Fifth Amendment's just compensation um, laws. That also kind of creates public sentiment that this property is not valuable to the property owners, that it's much more valuable for whatever the public use they are, they are selling that week. I brought up in the book that the Central Park plan was not the only plan for a park in Manhattan. There was another plan where they would have taken Jones Wood. Jones Wood is a, is a place on the kind of Upper East Side, kind of in the 60s on the East Side on the water. 
it wasn't going to be as big as Central Park, but it was going to be this kind of big green space. Only a few families lived there, as opposed to the hundreds of families that lived in Seneca Village, but they were rich white family. They were the Joneses. They were wealthy white people, which means, like everybody else, they lived below 14th Street. But, you know, Joneswood was their country estate. The government went to take their property. The, the, the Joneses sued New York State, and they won. They won a lawsuit that prevented New York State from taking their property. So then New York State went and took, sorry, New York City then went and took um, the property of Black people who also sued, but, oh, the Black people lost. And now we have Central Park. Do you have any suggestions about what the state could do now to pay the Black owners of Seneca Village what their land was actually worth? One of the nice things about owning property is that we have, we have records of that, right? We know, we know who they were. We know their names. We can go find their descendants. And, you know, if you want to talk about just compensation, they were paid... Uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong and I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember them on the plot, but so I'm not going to quote the number to you. Right. But, you know, they, they, they got a couple hundred dollars profit from, you know, when they bought the property to what the uh, 1857 authorities paid them um, for the property when they took it. But that property, you know, and you think about the seventies on central park West, that's pretty expensive land just at the moment. <laughs> and I bet that if we went and we found all the descendants and gave them what their property is really worth. That, that would go a long way to ameliorating the historical hurt and the historical uh, uh, tragedy of the government destroying their town. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that, but like that would be, oh, I believe the word would be, that would be a good way to repay, perhaps a reparation um, of, <laughs> of the harm that was caused. Excellent. So eminent domain, you say, is one example of how our Constitution is what you gently uh, term an imperfect work that needs to be reimagined. What's your larger argument here about achieving justice and equality for all with the Constitution we have? Right. So look, if we're going to stick with this Constitution, which there's going to be a whole another argument about maybe we shouldn't. But if we're going to stick with this constitution, then we need to interpret it in a way that for that that puts at the forefront the issues of justice, fairness, and equality. The constitution was written by slavers and colonists and people willing to make deals with slavers and colon and, and, and colonists. It's not a great document. I mean, it's just it's just straight up, it's not very it literally has not been all that successful if you consider the fact that we had to get into a fighting hot war over it, yes, less than 100 years after it was ratified. Like there, there are other ways to think about, you know, perfect documents and our constitution would not meet that standard, right? So if we're gonna stick with it, at the very least, we must take the amendments that allegedly fixed it, the 13th, the 14th and the 15th amendments. And I would add the 19th amendment, 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, the 14th Amendment called for equal protection, the 15th Amendment um, gave voting rights, universal suffrage to men, and the 19th Amendment eventually gave universal suffrage to women. Those four amendments together become the most important parts of the Constitution if we're going to live in a pluralistic society. And so my fix for it is that everything that we do has to be strained through a lens and pass under under the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be legitimate. 
And I would kind of start there as the baseline. I, you could call, I would call myself a 14th Amendment ideologist, right? Like <laughs> that, that, that's a thing. Why can't that be a thing? I would make the, the 14th Amendment is, is the thing that makes all of the other amendments legitimate. Equal protection of the laws. It's a must. You can't have a free society without equal protection of laws. You can't have a free society without universal suffrage. And if you're doing things in your society, Republicans in Georgia, that, that, that take away from universal suffrage or equal protection, then that society is not legitimate. And that shouldn't be a that really shouldn't be a controversial position. Ellie Mistal, he wrote about the use and abuse of eminent domain for The Nation magazine. You can read that online at thenation.com. His new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, is out now. Kirkus Reviews called it a reading of the Constitution that all social justice advocates should study. And Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion called it brisk and brutal, full of both laugh-out-loud lines and righteous fury. I agree. Thank you, Ellie. This was great. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.